All right, everybody. Uh, we're so glad that you are here with us this morning. Uh, it's good to be together. Um, and I, I'm glad, uh, just so you know, no one showed up an hour early. Um, that, that doesn't happen on this, this day of the year. Uh, but it's, it's good for us to be together. Last week, uh, when I was preaching, something, has hap- something happened that has never happened before, which is I cut out half of my sermon as I was doing it. You might think then that my sermon was shorter. Well, it wasn't, because I am not a quitter, and I don't give up on that kind of stuff. So this week's lesson is a continuation from last week. If you were not here last week, I encourage you to listen uh, to what we talked about last week to kind of bring you up to speed. When I was a youth pastor here, and believe it or not, I started as a youth pastor here uh, 21 years ago, a long time. Uh, I had the privilege of working with some really amazing kids, and that period of time, that four and a half, five years that I was here, uh, was truly one of uh, the best periods of time in my ministry uh, as a person. And, And part of it was because, you know, you guys were okay, but your kids were great. And, and I just, Nietzsche and I were able to build a really meaningful and lasting relationships. Um, but within that group of amazing kids through the years, as will happen, some of them were a touch strong-willed. And because some of them were a touch strong-willed, uh, they loved to argue, not just with other people, but with me. And, uh, you know, if, in case, I don't, I don't want to name anyone's names. Okay, I don't want to point fingers at, say, someone whose name starts with a B and rhymes with Rianne. Um, I, don't, I don't want to do that, because that would just, that would not be fair. But at any rate, these kids love to argue with one another, and often I would sit back and listen before I inserted myself into a conversation. And it sort of became a thing. Uh, if any of you were around the youth ministry at that time, you might remember this. Um, because once I waded in to whatever argument, or they would argue and then bring it to me, uh, it was on. And my goal was to be right. But more than that, for them to know I was right, and by extension, that they were, in fact, wrong. That was the exercise. And it sort of became a challenge for the students to prove uh, that they were right about something, and I was wrong about something. Was it a teaching moment for the students? I don't care if it was or not. Uh, Complete domination was what I was after, and I most often achieved it. And I would not simply join in and say the correct thing. I would slowly and methodically deconstruct their arguments. Oh, so you're saying this. No, that's not what I'm saying. Are you sure? Maybe you should look at what you said again then, if that's not what you're saying, because it sure sounds like that's what you're saying. Was it to make fun of them? Maybe it was to make fun of them, but not really. You know, mostly not. It wasn't that. I mean, sometimes maybe it was, but most of the time that wasn't it. And at times it became a bit of a sport, again, where the kids would start an argument and they would drag me into it. And the end result was always the same. I did not lose a single argument with kids in the youth group. I I refused. Um, And part of that might have been because I only entered arguments where they were so confidently wrong uh, that it just became fun. 
But that was the point, is that I would show them that I was right. And I could have left it there, of course, but after I proved I was right, I made the students repeat something back to me. I would say to them, so who was right? And they would say, Bryce was right. It's true, uh, because Bryce is always right. I'm sure you're aware of this by now, that I'm infallible in my thinking. Uh, now, these exercises were always carried out in fun, uh, and, and we had fun having these moments. They actually looked forward to having these kinds of arguments and discussions with me. Something funny happened when I moved on from being a youth pastor to working with adults. Uh, not only was, of course, I, I working with people from a, a different age group, but I quickly learned that the dynamics between me and adults uh, were not the same. And when I first, you know, switched over to the dark side, people asked me, uh, what's the main difference between uh, being a youth minister and being a pastor? And I would say, oh, that's easy. I could tell the kids they were being stupid and to knock it off, and most often they would. At least in front of me, they would. Um, and yes, that worked a lot of the time. However, with adults, I could not really venture out into that, you know, you're being kind of silly, so I think you should knock it off. Why is that the case, you ask? Well, because many of the adults that I worked with at the time assumed that they at the very least knew as well as I did, if they did not know better than me. Now, part of that was due to my age. I was 30 at the time, uh, which was a good, good as reason of any as to tell me, you know, what I should be doing and how I should be doing it. But over time, I had to prove to them that I actually did know what I was talking about. And sometimes even proving that I knew what I was talking about was not enough. Because something changes in us from the time we're teenagers to the time we're adults. And, I, you know, you also, too, have known a lot of stubborn, strong-willed kids who will refuse to admit they are wrong. But again, something fundamentally changes in us when we become adults. And what changes about us is that being right takes on a completely new skin. It becomes more important to us. And there's a bit of an uncomfortable thing that we need to recognize this morning, which is we as Christians put a great deal of importance on being right. We want to be right. We do not want to be wrong. It's okay if others are wrong, but it's not okay for us to be wrong. And in fact, depending upon the issue, there is often an insistence upon one party being right, the other party being wrong, and everyone knowing that that is the case. Because as silly as it might have been how I played this out with the kids, it's not so silly when we become adults and we disagree with someone. And our insistence on recognition for how we were right and they are wrong. And let me tell you why I think that this is the case. 
It's the case because when it comes to God, being right could be a matter in our eyes of salvation. What if they misunderstand God? What if they misrepresent God? What if they're saying something is not important that really is important? What if they're saying something isn't important that really is important? What if everything is important and they're not recognizing any of it? How do we decide what is important? We have to get in there and have these discussions and to say who is right and who is wrong. And because it could be a matter of salvation, there is a pressure we feel to know what is right and where what is wrong and to make sure that what is right stands openly against what is wrong. We come by this honestly, okay? And, and at its core, there is nothing necessarily wrong with this. Because maybe... Uh, someone, again, is distorting the word of God and that person needs to be corrected. Maybe their understanding of God is leading others in the wrong direction. And we know that in these cases, someone needs to be put back on the right path, correct? So there is good to this inclination to want things to be right. However, the negative side of this is that in our quest to suss out the right from the wrong, we have often fought over trivial issues, striving to be right about things that don't ultimately matter. Did they matter to us at the time? Yeah, they did. They mattered to us at the time. But maybe you are old enough, have lived long enough, been in a church long enough to reflect back on the things that you used to think were so important and how they simply are not important to you anymore. Within Churches of Christ, there has historically been a heavy emphasis on knowledge, what you know, who is right and who is wrong. And this dynamic has extended into such things as clapping, whether or not it is a sin to clap in the assembly. Raising hands, one cup or many cups, Bible school classes, kitchens, what women can or cannot do, instruments, the list goes on and on, doesn't it? Like we can think of so many things that are on this list. And in each of these cases, when they occurred in our history, someone was right and someone was wrong. But what happened when someone was right and someone was wrong? You weren't just wrong. You were potentially going to hell because you disagreed on this subject or this issue. And again, I, I am not making fun of anyone at all because the hard part of it is is that people were seriously heartbroken and stressed over someone going to hell because of one of these issues. That is how deep the desire is at times for us to follow God and to do what is right. So we need to acknowledge something that is important. We can look back at many cases in our history, and not just Churches of Christ, by the way. This applies to every church that has existed. In many of these cases, people pursued being right out of a desire of, to do what God wanted them to do. And out of a desire to change people's course if they thought they were going to hell. That is a good and responsible thing to do. However, 
It is so easy for us to put being, the, the value of being right on every issue ahead of what it means to live in a right way with those around us. Because here is the terrible fallout of all of those arguments and discussions and right and wrong things that we had, is that church is split again and again and again. And let's reflect on what that means for a second. That means that within a church, a group of people defined by the love of Jesus, they decided, some did, that this thing was so important they could no longer be in church with that person who thought differently. Yeah? Now again, we want people, right, to make decisions that they believe God is calling them to make. But I am troubled by the knowledge that we may not always know the difference. We may not often know the difference between what is important and what is not. And it's especially hard to deal with when you see the community of God fracture over and over again. That we have not always shown a great ability to meet each other over something we may disagree about. So, where do we go with this? Well, the church in Corinth gives us another case study which helps us to understand this situation better. And we started to dig into this a little bit last week where members of the church were suing one another in public court to get whatever they thought they deserved, to get justice. Um, and so they were taking each other to court over these different things. And this often included the rich taking advantage of the poor. The courts were stacked in their favor. And so anytime a rich or wealthy person went to court, odds are they were going to win that case, whether there was a case or not. And when Paul reflected on this situation within their church, he tells them that they were completely defeated. They had lost the thread of Jesus somewhere in there. They had lost him completely. He was not there. And so Paul suggests to them a lot of pretty radical things. Hey, isn't there someone smart enough, wise enough in your church to help you figure this out? Is there? Well, then why didn't you go to them? And in fact, maybe there's not. Isn't it better for you to decide to be wronged, to not insist on what you think you deserve for the sake of the body of Christ? For does God call us to put our own rights, our own freedoms, our own desires ahead of others? No. 
And any message that portrays that about our God is a wrong gospel that needs to be corrected. So we follow this up with an example that is just as challenging as the one we looked at and honestly hits a little bit more close to home. We're not suing one another for the most part, I don't think. I don't think that's happening. So it'd be easy to look at that example and say, well, but, but that's not really us, right? Uh, this one's a little more tricky, even though it's about an issue that is a little bit difficult for us to understand. And it's about the issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. So if you have your Bibles, open up to chapter 8. And we're going to read verses 1 through 13. Now, Paul says, about food sacrificed to idols. So there's something we know right off the bat. And that is, Paul has received information, either through a letter or through conversation, that this is an issue. It's almost like he, you can tell at this point, it's almost like he's working through a checklist, right? Okay, we've covered this, we've covered this, we've covered this. Now, about meat food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, in quotes. They should already be afraid about what he's going to say. Those quotations are, are pretty strong. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quotation, gods, and many, quotation, lords, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols, excuse me, that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block for the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against whom? Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. 
so that I will not cause them to fall. Okay, you know, looking at this, it seems that this might not really be about food sacrifice to idols. I'm not totally confident about that, but it seems like maybe, maybe there's something else that goes along with this one example. So what was happening? Well, it's pretty obvious, right? He explains it fairly well. Some people were eating meat sacrificed to idols. To them, it wasn't a really big deal. Others believed that it was, in fact, a really big deal because they believed that the meat sacrificed to idols was defiled. And Paul kind of lets us in on, on, on what's happening there because what seems to have been happening is that not only were some Corinthian Christians eating this defiled meat, as some saw it, where were they eating it? In the temple to the other gods. And so there were some that had a fairly serious problem with this. And they could not, because Paul says of where they came from, they could not wrap their minds around how this is okay. How is it okay for you to go into a temple to another god and eat meat that was off or food that was offered to that god? How is this okay? I, I, I don't get it. Paul clearly states, okay, that this practice of eating food uh, sacrifice to idols and even eating it in the temple is not in and of itself wrong. He goes so far as to say, you know, it's really not that big a deal. And, and why is it not such a big deal? Well, I mean, is there any other God besides God? No. So is this temple over here a temple to a real God? No. Was the meat that was sacrificed a real sacrifice to a real God? Well, maybe it was a sacrifice, but it wasn't to a real God. So does it matter if you eat something good where all the intentions and uses around it were fake? No. Like, no. In fact, by giving more attention to it because it is from another God, you are almost in some way doing what? You're almost saying, well, isn't it kind of real? You know? Isn't, it, isn't there something here that we should be worried about? So they couldn't get over the fact that they were eating meat sacrificed to other gods and how there could be anything good about this. Well, the other side that was eating this food, they said, look, it's not... It's food. We're going to eat it because it's food. So I don't really know what you're worried about. So here's what's so interesting about this example to us. Is one side right? Yes, one side is right. Is the other side wrong? Yes. Technically, one side is right and one side is wrong. Right? Fair? Okay. So, if that's the case, then what is the real problem? What's the issue? Um, the issue for Paul is not 
who is right and who is wrong. He is not simply trying to settle an argument. The issue for Paul is how they treat one another, in particular, how those who are right on this issue treat those who are wrong. Now, again, this issue is a little different for us because in this case, we have very clear examples. One side is technically right, one side is technically wrong. But when they come together to have some sort of discussion about this, there was mutual judgment over an issue, and did the issue matter? No. In and of itself, the issue did not matter. So where is the harm coming from? It's coming from what they are doing to one another over this inconsequential matter. That is the problem. Disagreements within the body of Christ are going to happen, correct? But get this. Differences, even if one side is right, they do not give anyone, anyone, the right to sacrifice the health of the community or someone else just because they are right about this. You, you follow me? <clears throat> so what did this whole you know, this whole shenanigan, what did it say about them? It says something that we have practiced, which we acknowledged at the very beginning, that being right about everything was more important than being together and being a healthy body of Christ. Those who believed they had freedom insisted on using that freedom, no matter what the other people thought. Who was working within this community, however, toward what would be best for everyone? Who was doing that? No one, except for Paul, and maybe whoever informed Paul about what was going on. Okay, so we have to ask ourselves the question, why is this such a big deal? Because it is a big deal. It's a big enough deal that Paul is basically deconstructing everything they think about these things and telling them how wrong they are. It's a big deal. What is so challenging about this situation? Shouldn't it be simple? Yes, it should be simple. One side is right, one side is wrong. But what is our expectation of what should happen when one side is right and one side is wrong? Who needs to change? Those who are wrong. Why? Because they're wrong. And I'm right. So why should I have to do something differently when they are completely off base about this thing? When it, when it doesn't matter at all, the wrong should relent to the right. This is how it works. Paul even said in this section that those who were wrong on this issue are what they are weak they're weak that sounds awful judgy judgy doesn't it from paul and 
In my mind, I, I think, Paul, why did you use that word? Because won't that just be more fuel to the fire that the right are already feeling? You know, not only are they wrong, but they're weak. And not only are you right, but you're strong. So, what is Paul's point in all of this? He asked some kind of simple questions here, and let me paraphrase them for you. Is it right for those who have more wisdom to keep doing what they are allowed to do regardless of the effect it has on someone else? And in fact, is it okay for the one who is right to insist to the one that thinks is wrong that not only is it okay for me to do it, but you know what, wrong person, it's okay for you too. Why don't you come with me and let's show how free in Christ you are. Is anyone getting uncomfortable with this? I am. And part of the reason why I'm uncomfortable with this is because I've heard these things. Not stated this exact same way, right? But I've, I've heard these kinds of arguments. We are free in Christ. I am free to do these things. I know you don't think it's right, but come do it anyway. Because we are free in Christ. So what should they do? There is one principle that overrides any angle you want to take on this thing, any part of this discussion. And here is the one thing that overrides any other part of it. These people that he is writing to are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And their number one priority is not proving that one of them is right and one of them is wrong, their number one priority is to love one another regardless of who's right and regardless of who's wrong. That is what they are called to. Okay, then, so what does wisdom mean within that context? And this is where Paul is especially brutal. He, show these, he shows these people who think they have the knowledge, who think they are so wise for not being so easily offended like these other people are, just how little wisdom they actually have. Oh, you know this is okay? Good for you. Oh, you think this other person should do it because they can? Good for you. Oh, you're going to do it in front of them? Good for you. Oh, you're going to have them come along? Good for you. You have sinned against Jesus. You have sinned against Jesus. Because you have prioritized being right about this one thing which we have all already acknowledged is inconsequential. You have prioritized your being right about this over what it means for this person to violate their conscience in a way that they cannot wrap their minds around. Good for you. 
ouch! That's hard, isn't it? That is so hard, but this is what Paul says to us. He says to them, look, you cannot let an issue like this divide you. You have so many other problems to worry about. So many. And you're not allowing one person who needs to grow in this particular way, you're not helping them do it. You are only making them weaker. So that the next challenge they come against, where their conscience says we can't do this, what are they going to do? They're going to question their conscience, even if it's God speaking to them. Because they violated it once before, because someone else was right. Maybe I just need to listen to the things around me instead and not follow what it is that God is putting on my heart. What should the wise do? They need to be wise. (laughs) You know? They need to show that they have wisdom. Paul uh, throws a couple of darts at them in this thing. And, I mean, look at verse 2. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. You hear that? Yeah, you contain correct information about this thing, but you show through the way that you're handling this that you are not wise. You, as a church, are responsible for one another. Therefore, if someone is struggling with something, you do not engage in the activity they're struggling with in front of them just because you can. You're not making the point you think you are. You're not making the point you think you are. And by doing so, you are pushing them to engage in something that is against their conscience and you are making them more weak. You are making them more weak. And so he says in verse 11, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is what? Destroyed by what you know. When you do this, you sin against them. You sin against Jesus because you are the one who is wrong. And when it all comes down to the bottom of it, Does their knowledge of freedom to eat meat matter at all? No, it doesn't. It doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter at all. So be wise then, you who know things. And be wise enough to know that letting this go so that someone can learn and grow to deal with something, know that that's better. Know that that's better. Instead of insisting that they acknowledge that you are right and they are wrong. So here's the big idea from this morning. Being right or having freedom in Christ does not give you the right to tear other people down because they disagree with you. It does not give you that right. It does not do for you what you think it does. Instead, it makes you more responsible for them. 
Your job is not to prove to them that you're right. Your job is to walk alongside them so they come to a better understanding of who Jesus is. You who are wise walk alongside them so that they come to a better understanding of who Jesus is. That is what you who know something, who knows something, that is what you do. You are to care more about one another than you do about being right or what rights you had. And look, it's too easy for us to sweep some of this away because if we disagree with something at a church, what can we do? We can go to another church that thinks the things we think are right are right and that doesn't do the things we think are wrong. How many times conceivably can we do that? A lot, right? Over and over and over again. We could do it over and over and over again. When Paul is writing these words, there is no other church on the corner. There is no other place for them to go. If they dissolve this body, there is no body. So maybe that's something we need to be reminded of, too. That the group, the people that we are in community about, it's about more than simply where we go to church on Sunday mornings. It's about more than who the preacher is or the elders are. It's about more than the programs that are offered. Paul teaches us that when we are in community, we are family. We are here together. And we are responsible for one another. And you know what? Sometimes that means you don't take a freedom Jesus has given to you so that you can walk alongside someone who doesn't get it yet. How wonderful. How wonderful is that? That you would not insist on something you by all rights should be able to do because you are choosing to love someone who doesn't get it yet and to walk with them until... They do. Or until you both decide, you know that thing we argued about? <laughs> that was so dumb, wasn't it? So what do we learn from all of this? Number one, we have an enormous responsibility to love one another. You know, sometimes we have discussions about church life or about the gospel, and when we have those discussions, we look at the scriptures, it always comes back to the same thing, doesn't it? That God loves us, that we love God, that we love one another. And what we see in not only in Corinth, but in every other place, the, a lot of this is just commentary on how we need to love one another better. It's example after example after example of how we prioritize other things over loving one another. And look, loving one another is not always going to be easy. Because we are going to disagree about small things. We're going to disagree about big things. In fact, we are going to disagree about some things that we're not sure what to do with that disagreement. But how is it better to choose not to walk together with Jesus anymore over that? You know? How... 
How is that a good thing? When community divides itself and puts those walls up. Because the hard basic principle is we should be more committed to the body than we are to ourselves. Not just Jesus to the body. Number two, being right about something does not give us license to withhold the love of God from others. It does not give us the right to decide what one should or should not do or how they should respond to the issue. It does not give us the right to put a timeline on how quickly they need to get this in order to be right. The stronger are not here to be stronger. They are here to help those who are weak. And the strongest and most wise know that. Number three, and this is important, this passage is not meant to be used as a weapon one way or the other. It is not meant to say, well, see, you should have not done this and walked with me. And it's not for the other side to say, see, it didn't really matter. And you left before we even got to deal with it. That's not what this passage is about. It's not about one side justifying itself over the other. It's not about one side being right. Because the fact is, when you are a part of the body of Christ, you are in this thing together. You are responsible for one another. And the overwhelming image that comes out of that is that you are not pieces doing things on your own as God calls you or gifts you or tells you you can. You are in this together. You are in this together. And the image that he wants to take over this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, he brings up later, you are the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. Some of you are eyes. Some of you are ears. Some of you are feet. And he breaks down how not only are we in this together, but we are dependent upon one another to be who Jesus wants us to be. You can't do it without this person who may be weaker than you. And they certainly can't do it without you. It is not about the weak slowing down the strong. It is not about the strong pushing the weak to the conclusions they should make. It is about a group of imperfect people loving one another enough to fight, to fight for the community that is created when we all sit in the same room and say, I need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. Amen. Doesn't that overcome? Isn't that bigger? Isn't that more than anything we could put in its place? It is. I encourage you, as your pastor, to study things if you're confused about them. To look into what should be done or shouldn't be done. To have some sense of what God is forming you and making you to be. But don't forget that within that formation that God is working on your heart, that you are a part of something 
that is going to grow because of how you're growing. And God is not calling you to grow apart from all those people. He's not. You need to be a better hand. That's what God is doing in you, you see. You need to be better eyes. You need to be a better mouthpiece. You need to be better feet. You need to be what God is making you to be in this place. And not somewhere else. Amen? It does not matter how right we are about any given thing if we do not use the wisdom that we had to lift up, encourage, and love those around us. And that, my friends, is the right answer. As we take communion this morning, we are celebrating that we are mixed up in this whole kooky thing called following Jesus. That we found ourselves away from God, that we realized through our own efforts, we weren't going to make it. We realized that there was no way to save ourselves from the messes that we keep making. And we rejoice that God says, yeah, it's a mess but Jesus has overcome for you. And that changes us, doesn't it? It does.